Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Elijah, Elijah the prophet. It would help, Mike, if you could, just to sort of remind us at which time he was living, what was going on at the time. Yeah, that's really important. In fact, with all the prophets, it's always really helpful for us to know what their setting was, because that helps us understand their message. So we're in the 9th century BC. His ministry is about 875 to 848 BC. But what does that mean? Well, in a previous episode, we looked at how after the reign of King Solomon, at his death, his son Rehoboam was really unwise and didn't respond to the plea of the northern tribes for a bit of relief in terms of both the taxes they were paying and the physical manpower they were having to provide for all Solomon's great projects. And his son Rehoboam just turned them away and said that stuff was just going to get even harder with him. And so those 10 northern tribes broke away, established a king of their own who was not a descendant of David called Jeroboam. And Jeroboam became the ruler, the king of a completely separate nation, now known from this point in the history as Israel, while the two remaining tribes in the south were left being ruled by Davidic descendants. And so the nation has split it will never come back together again. So Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. And in the telling of this story in 1 Kings, actually the author keeps weaving between the two. So he starts with Judah, we'll tell you what happened there. When that king dies, he does a sort of, meanwhile, back in Israel, this was happening. So it can be a little tricky to follow. But if you look for, is it Israel or is it Judah? That will help you know, is this part of the true descendants of David or is this the rebellious breakaway nation. And it was that rebellious breakaway nation that really was going to drift so far from God. So there were various kings over either the north or the south, over Israel or Judah during this time. And Elijah lives during one of those reigns? That's right. So we get uh, Jeroboam is this military commander of, uh, that used to work for Solomon, who's appointed a king. And one of the bad things he does is, you see, clearly he does not want people going to Jerusalem for the temple. That could be really risky. So he builds a shrine himself, a golden calf, and henceforth in the Old Testament, they'll often refer back to the sin of Jeroboam, idolatry. And so Jeroboam is followed by a whole string of kings, Jeroboam, Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Tibni, Omri. Now, we know from secular sources that Omri was a really significant king, really developed the nation, but he's dismissed in six or seven verses in the Bible. Why? Because his heart wasn't set on God. And it's Omri's son, King Ahab, who's on the throne when Elijah comes into the scene. And is there a case of like father, like son? Yeah, very much so. One of the things that Omri had done to help strengthen his kingdom was to marry Ahab off to a Phoenician princess. In those days, marriage alliances were one of the great ways of ensuring stability and peace between nations. And so King Ahab had, as he would become, had married a lady called Jezebel. 
and Jezebel was a follower of Baal worship. But the thing is, in Phoenicia, where she came from, it was a particularly um, aggressive form, a virulent form of Baal worship. They were really, really strong into it. So she brings this religion with her into the kingdom, obviously influences King Ahab. And so what we find in the period of Ahab is the northern kingdom of Israel descending to some of its darkest, darkest days where almost faith in the true God, the living God, Yahweh, is almost extinguished. Now, at first, it starts out by people a bit of Yahweh and a bit of this, what we call syncretism, trying to blend different religions. But eventually it's the Baal worship that wins and predominates. Why? Because it's a very sexualized religion. Baal worship was a fertility religion. And one of its key expressions was that its shrines would often have male and female temple prostitutes. And the engaging in the sexual act with these prostitutes was seen as a way of trying to provoke Baal and his consort Asherah in heaven to have, as it were, intercourse in heaven and so let the fertility come to the land. So I think we can understand to a sort of godless, not spiritual mind. This is a very attractive religion. There you go off to do your worship and get as much sex as you like, and you can call it worship to God. And Ahab is quite happy to please his wife and let this start to invade the thinking and the behaviour of people. Absolutely. And he becomes very, very involved in it too. She brings in a whole load of prophets back from her own country and a whole load of priests. So by the time Elijah pops up on the scene, and it really is a popping up on the scene, he seems to come from nowhere, the days are looking incredibly dark, and it's almost at the point where true worship of Yahweh is about to be extinguished. And it's at that moment that God acts. You said just then that Jezebel brought prophets and priests. Do you mean pagan priests and pagan prophets? Yes, absolutely. Those who would promote this particularly strong form of Phoenician Baal worship. So she wants her own priests and prophets, not the Israelite ones, thank you very much. They're tainted with a bit of Yahweh still. She wants purity of her faith. And she was incredibly aggressive in her promoting of this faith. Because it was so sexualized, it was the sort of thing that people could very easily say yes to. So Elijah the prophet comes along. He's a different sort of prophet who believes in a different sort of God. <laughs> And uh, faces up then, does he, to these other prophets? Very much so. His name is the giveaway, Elijah. In Hebrew, Eliyahu means the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord is my God. So even his very name is making it clear what sort of prophet this guy is. And we really know very little about him. 1 Kings 17 simply says, now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, and he's suddenly on the scene, Tishbe in Gilead. Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan. We don't even know exactly where Tishbe was, but he's a worshipper of the true and living God who devoted his life to that. He clearly had a call from God to go, and off he goes. My goodness, having to go into the palace, the very heart and stronghold of all this stuff. And he goes, in a sense, not first of all 
berating and denouncing the king for this, he goes and he says to King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Now, remember, Baal was the God of fertility. Baal controlled the weather. Baal was the one who brought the rain and the dew. And here's this upstart prophet from the back of beyond. I mean, and really they would have seen him in the fine courts, this guy who is really from the sticks, we might have said. Who's this guy? Mm. Dresses roughly, comes from the back of beyond. Tishbe, where's Tishbe? And he comes and challenges their prophets, their God, and says there will be no rain for three years, and there isn't. And King Ahab, but from what you've already said, he's, he's a notorious king in terms of his behavior and the way he treats people. And so Elijah going to King Ahab, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine the scene. Well, I wouldn't have liked to do it. I mean, you know, Ahab, we'll see as the story unfolds, is pretty ruthless. His wife Jezebel is even more ruthless. So these are ruthless kings who are passionately devoted and committed to the worship of Baal. And you are going in and you have the audacity to say to the king, my God is going to stop the rain. Man, this was some guy. Where has Elijah's faith come from? Well, it's the short answer is we don't know because he suddenly appears on the scene. But clearly he must have been brought up to have faith in the living God. And I think some of the stories we see early in 1 Kings 17 show that this is a this is a real believing faith. He has, he has to put his word on the line. Because, of course, if there is no rainfall on the land, who's that going to affect? Everyone, including Elijah. And so some of the first things we find are miraculous provisions of God for his prophet. You know, when we speak out God's word, God backs up what we say. What are some of these miracles like? One of them is he goes uh, to a place called the uh, Kerith Brook, east of the River Jordan, where, you know, there is no water because all this is drying up. And ravens bring him bread and meat each morning. They, you know, stuff they picked up and they drop it at his feet. Eventually, that brook itself dries up. There was a little water to begin with. And then God directs him to go and live in this village called Zarephath with a widow and he says to her, you know, would you please mind just helping care for me? Give me a little cup of water. And she says, I haven't got anything. I'm just having a last meal. And, and then me and my son are going to die. Uh, and Elijah says, you know, don't be afraid. And tells her to go and gather oil, gather as many vessels as she can. Like so olive oil, can gather be? Olive oil. Mm. Because that was very precious. You used olive oil for lights, for cooking for your body, for washing, so many things you could sell it. And there's this miraculous provision and as many containers as she brings, he just prays over them and they get filled with olive oil. And then sometime later he goes back, this woman's son has died, but he does a miracle and brings this boy back to life. So here's a faith where he's having to put himself on the line and really live out what he has prophesied. It's one thing to prophesy to the world, but then you yourself have to live through that and see God's provision. So, I mean, just being fed by birds, that's what you did say. Being fed by ravens. I mean, we normally feed the birds, but this is the birds feeding him. Because the whole of creation 
belongs to God. I always thought that was a strange story, but some years ago, I I had a friend, he's with the Lord now, uh, an Indian pastor who used to be a drunkard police inspector in India who had an encounter with the risen Jesus in his Hindu temple, a vision, who called him to be a pastor. He gave up his corrupt job, lived by faith, and there was a day when they had nothing. And God literally brought them money in the mouths of ravens who dropped these notes at their feet. So I've had a good friend who's experienced an equivalent of this. I don't find any difficulty. God is the God of the whole of creation including the ravens, and he can do whatever he likes when he needs to. But all these experiences sort of help to strengthen Elijah's faith. Yeah, very much so. And so by chapter 18, in the third year of this drought, God speaks to him again and sort of raises the notch once more. And he says, go and present yourself to King Ahab and tell him that I will send rain soon. Now, the text tells us that over these last three years, you know, the famine has become exceedingly severe. And so this is not a good time to go and see the king. You're the one who said the famine was going to come, and here it is. And so they end up with um, a contest to see, so who really is God? And so they have this thing that's often called the uh, the contest with the prophets on Mount Carmel. So who, who's it between? And it's between Elijah as the representative of the living God of Yahweh and the prophets of Baal that have been serving Ahab and his wife. He sounds like he's a bit outnumbered. Ah, in- incredibly outnumbered. I mean, there are hundreds of them compared to him. In fact, we read that he says, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, Baal's wife, who was supported by Jezebel, 850 to one. Man, if you just, you know, I think sometimes if you just imagine yourself in these settings when you're reading the Bible, think what that must have felt like. This guy mm. must really have known that God had spoken to him. <laughs> to say the pressure's on is an understatement. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, so, so how, how does the, the contest unfold? Well, the contest unfolds by Elijah saying to them, look, let's have a contest and determine uh, who really is God. So this is what we're going to do. He says to them, you go first. I'll, I'll let you go first because there are lots of you. Uh, so choose a bull, prepare it for sacrifice, lay it out on the altar, and then call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood, all right, to offer it up as a burnt mm. offering. So they prepare it and they get it ready and they start to call out to Baal. What they're looking for is fire to come from heaven mm. and spark this. So they're calling out, and the text tells us that they called out on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, oh, Baal answered, but I love this verse but there was no reply of any kind. And then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. And then around noontime, so this has been going on for a few hours now, and Elijah's just standing there mocking them. And he says, you know, why why don't you shout louder? You know, (laughs) he's a God. Uh, Maybe 
he is daydreaming. <laughs> and then some of the versions of the English Bible say, or maybe he has gone aside. But what the Hebrew actually means is maybe he's gone to the bathroom. <laughs> maybe he's gone to the toilet. So, I mean, he really is mocking being, and demeaning. Or maybe he's gone away on holiday. Being a bit sarcastic. He is being incredibly sarcastic. So the prophets of Baal shout louder and louder, and then they start cutting themselves because they felt often that demonstrating your devotion, how much, you know, you'd shed your blood and so on. And so they rave on all afternoon till the time of the evening sacrifice. And the Bible says, but there was no sound, no reply, no response. Baal has not succeeded. That won't have surprised Elijah. Well, it wouldn't have surprised him at all because it was God who had told him to do this. Well, I'm sure it surprised the prophets of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel. But the contest isn't over because now Elijah does a, okay, watch this. Because he could have left it at that, couldn't he? Oh, he could have left it at that and said, what a rubbish God your God is. But that's not enough for Elijah. He, he's proved his point. He wants them to see not just that Baal is not powerful. He wants them to see that Yahweh alone is all powerful. So he prepares his altar and piles up the wood and prepares the bull and puts it on the altar. But not content with that, he then says to them, go and get four large jars of water and pour the water over the altar. So in other words, he's making it even more difficult for this to happen. And then he prays, oh Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's going back to remembering who this God is, the God of history, the God of the patriarchs, the God of Israel. Prove today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. Lord, act so that they will know. And instantly, as he finishes his prayer, he tells us that fire came down from heaven and burnt up the whole offering, even though it had been soaked with water. And suddenly, when all the people see it, they fall down on the ground and they start to shout out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Interesting that in Hebrew, the Lord, he is God is Elijah, Eliyahu. <laughs> so they are both calling out a declaration and calling out his names. Yahweh has clearly won this contest. And then Elijah says to some of his followers, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So they chase after them. They kill every single one of them. Now you can imagine what that did to Ahab and especially to Jezebel. But he's, he's not quite finished yet because he says to Ahab, man, he must have so stepped out in faith here. He says, um, go and get something to eat and drink for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Now, actually, at that moment when he said it, he heard absolutely nothing. He was speaking this out in faith. And so he gets down and he starts to pray. I imagine it would be, oh, God, please turn up at this point. <laughs> and then he says to his servants, go and take a look at the sea. Why the sea? Because that's where the clouds and the rain came from. And he says, do you see anything? And the servant says, no, can't see anything. And he prays again, do you see anything? No, still can't see anything. Seven times he repeats this. And it's on the last one when he keeps praying, keeps battering away. Sometimes we just have to keep praying into things to see it come to pass. And on that seventh time, the servant suddenly says, here, hang on a minute. I see a little cloud about the size of a man's hand 
rising from the sea. He could see the cloud coming. And Elijah says to Ahab, you'd better get in your chariot and head for home before this storm comes. And he tucks his robe into his belt and off he goes and disappears ready for his next adventure. He left that place singing and high, I'm sure. I'm just imagining the impact on Elijah's servant, who's maybe not that prominent in the story normally, but he witnessed all of that. Yes, he did. And now, I wonder what he was thinking there. You know, was he thinking, I think Elijah's lost it this time. Elijah, sorry, there is really nothing there. But Elijah knew, you know, and when you know God has spoken, it just keeps driving you back to praying and praying and praying into being what you know God has said. And that's what Elijah did. And I think when that servant eventually thought, hang on a minute, there is something. Think the joy that must have started to well in his heart and he thought my master was right here it comes and Yahweh proved himself to be the god of the weather not Baal now Ahab as you said and Jezebel particularly were not very pleased with that you say Elijah fled the scene that, that sort of implies cowardice it's funny what happens here because Ahab goes back and tells Jezebel what happens and she is livid i mean after all these are her personal prophets 900 have been slaughtered yeah she's brought the prophets and the priests they're all so this is an assault not just on Baal. this is a, an assault on her personally and jezebel was not a lady to be crossed and so she says may the gods strike me and kill me if this by this time tomorrow i've not killed elijah just like he killed them and it says Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. It's strange, isn't it? He's had this high mountaintop experience where he has seen God do the most incredible miracle. And suddenly this word of threat from this, yes, powerful woman, suddenly he collapses and he melts. And I think, you know, often if we have had a high in life, like this clearly was for him, sometimes it's very easy then to suddenly, huh, drop when the emotion of all of that is passed and particularly if, if someone does a threat and so he he goes off he goes off into the wilderness and and starts to fall into self-pity and he says oh lord why don't you let me die i'm no better than my ancestors or already dead and and god encounters him and says get up and eat because i've got a journey for you and he sends him on a pilgrimage where to to mount horeb or mount sinai as it's also called the place where he'd met with Moses and spoken his word. And he says, go back, go back to where this whole thing started. And I'm going to meet you there. And it's, to be honest, in a state of depression and disappointment and flatness that Elijah makes this journey and finds that God has got there before him. So it's a kind of recharging of his faith by going back to his spiritual roots. He takes him right back to the beginning. And I, I think he shows him, Elijah, you know, this is not about you. He was a man of great energy. Clearly, Elijah was a fiery character from all the stories that we read about him. And I think he'd probably been on a high. Anybody who's preached or done some teaching where you've seen people responding to you knows the thrill you get thinking, yes, thank you, Lord, got it. But that high can sometimes then be followed by a low. And so God encounters him back there 
on the mountain and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah, again, gets into self-pity. I've zealously served you, but the people have broken covenant with you. They've killed all of your prophets. And this is a great line. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Sometimes we can fall into such self-pity. They think we think there's only me uh, making a stand. And God says, no, there isn't. But he does it in an interesting way. He says, Go and stand on the mountain. And, and God's about to manifest himself. And as he stands there, this sort of mighty wind passes by. But, but God's not in the wind. Remember in the Old Testament, God often appeared in physical ways, in burning bushes, in wind, in fire. But he's not in the wind. And, and the rocks are shaken and there's an earthquake and then there's fire. And God is in none of them. And I think Elijah was expecting this fiery man who's a man of action was expecting that God would be in the strong wind or the earthquake or the fire. This is how God worked, wasn't it? With this stuff. And then he finds that actually God appears to him quite differently. He says, after the fire, there was the New Living Translation says, the sound of a gentle whisper, almost a silence. And sometimes after we've had lots of activity, it's that still quiet voice of God that we need of reassurance to know that we are there. And, and then having had this encounter, this recharging of his relationship, this going back to the roots to where it all began at Sinai, God speaks to them and says to them, go back the way you've came. I've got some work for you. Anoint uh, a new king, Hazael, to be the king of Aram. Anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. And anoint, ah, this guy will come up soon, Elisha, to replace you as my prophet. Oh, and by the way, Elijah, I'll preserve 7,000 in others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. You think you're the only one? There are 7,000 out there who've not done it. Very often when we fall into self-pity, we can so easily think, I'm the only one. God says, no, you're not. And he sends him back to get on with his life and his ministry. And how did his life end? His life ends in a very unusual way. Remember, one of the things he'd been told to do there was to anoint his successor, Elisha. But he was really very reluctant to do this. He, I'm not sure. He was a bit of a loner. I mean, he really did like operating on his own and I think probably didn't like people actually and didn't really enjoy people at all. But God had spoken to him about anointing Elisha as a prophet. So he calls him to be Elisha and Elisha burns up the yoke of, that he'd been using to plow with the oxen to follow him. But Elijah's view is when he says, you know, can I just go back and say goodbye to my mum and dad first? And he said, please yourself, what is that to me? My loose translation there. <laughs> he really doesn't care. It's like, I've only anointed you because God called me to. I don't care. <laughs> Very much a loner. But then we find Elisha working alongside him for a little while. And by the time we get to 2 Kings chapter 2, it's time for Elijah to end his earthly ministry. And it, it, it happens in a very strange way. He says to Elisha, stay here. I've got to go across the Jordan because God's got a, a thing for me to do. And Elisha will not leave him. He says, as surely as I live, I will never leave you. And it seems like God had told Elisha 
what was to happen because some prophets come and said do you know god's going to take him to them he said yeah yeah i do but be quiet about it so they crossed the jordan together jordan's often a place of significance a mark of crossing over they cross over quite miraculously as elijah strikes the river with his cloak and it parts to let them pass through and it's while they are at the other side that this incredible thing happens two kings two says that as they were walking along and talking suddenly a chariot of fire appeared drawn by horses of fire it drove them between the two men separating them and elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven and he disappears from sight just like that just like that elijah picks up his cloak goes back to the jordan strikes it because he'd asked to have a double portion that didn't mean twice as much anointing as elijah had had it meant recognize me as your successor and it happened but elijah yeah was taken up into heaven and i almost was tempted to say that's the last we hear of him but of course it's not the last we hear of him because malachi will talk about messiah coming in the spirit and power of elijah and there'll be that incident on the mount of transfiguration when jesus is transfigured something happens to him his divine glory bursts out and Peter, James, and John, who are up the mountain with him, see Moses and Elijah, the reassurance that his life on earth may not have ended, but God had taken into himself and his future was secure. So this is hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years later. Isn't that great to know that it doesn't matter when we die, that if we trust in the Lord, we have a firm and secure place with him in heaven. Elijah certainly seems like a larger-than-life figure. Is there anything about him that makes us think he was a bit like us? Interesting that phrase you use there is referred to in the New Testament. Elijah was a man like us, James says, and he prayed and God heard his prayer. A man like us, I often wondered what did James mean by that? Because in many ways he was a man not like us. You know, he, he was melancholic, he was a depressive, he was a loner. Not everyone is like that. But I think what he was saying is he was a real human being. Who in the midst of challenge trusted God? In the West at the moment, those of us who are Christians have got huge challenges that we face in terms of our culture around us, the religions around us, the lack of religion around us. And it's probably an equivalent Baal day for us when it looks like the true light of faith in the living God could almost be squashed out. But for me, Elijah models us, this is a time to stand up for God. We may not be all caught to bring fire from heaven to consume sacrifices on Mount Carmel, but we can all be called and respond to God's challenge for us to be those who challenge the isms and the culture of the world around us and to be a living example and representative of what life is like to know the living God. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.